Welcome to episode six of Sea Change, the podcast series produced by CICK News, all about seaweed and kelp along the coast of British Columbia. Today's guest is someone whose name came up in internet searches I did about seaweed, seaweed research, and women in science. Funnily enough, it was also Daphne Romero Salazar, my guest from episode two of Sea Change, who told me that I really had to speak to Dr. Mycera Costa about the research she's been doing during her time at the University of Victoria. Dr. Costa has built the Spectral Lab for investigating spectral characteristics of the Earth's surface. Dr. Costa's latest research is to discover and digitize the presence of kelp along BC's coast by studying the interaction of light energy with organic and inorganic material in water. To do this, her and her team have used satellite images from the 80s, technology old enough to know what dial-up internet sounds like. But get this, as a total fluke, she discovered that nautical maps from the 18th and 19th century had already mapped out the presence of kelp forests along the coast. So now, Dr. Costa and her team are using some of the most groundbreaking technology to augment old, hand-drawn maps that sailors used when importing and exporting goods into and out of British Columbia as a guide for their spatial data collection. Allow me to introduce Dr. Mycera Costa. So my name is Mycera Costa. I work at the Geography Department at the University of Victoria, and I coordinate the Spectrum Remote Sense Laboratory. The focus of our laboratory is looking at coastal oceans, the dynamic coastal oceans, including ocean primary productivity and uh, the habitats, the nearshore habitats along the coastal ocean, and how these different aspects are changing space and time, and uh, uh, what's the relationship with the health of those habitats with the changes in climate and other human actions along the coast of British Columbia. Yeah, so could you please tell me about your work um, mapping the ocean floor using spatial data and, uh, and explain that to me as a, non, as a non-scientist um, so, so I could understand a little more of what it is. Mm-hmm. One of the important uh, components of our research is looking at the nearshore habitats along the coast of British Columbia as they are very important for different species in the ocean, for example, juvenile salmon. One of the habitats that we look a lot and we do a lot of research is uh, the kelp habitats, the floating kelp habitats along the BC coast, especially bulk kelp and giant kelp. One of the projects that we presently have is looking at the resilience of kelp in space and time, starting with data from the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. And this data is derived from British nautical charts which were all digitized and interpreted for defining areas where kelp exist. Uh, at that time, kelp was considered uh, a navigation hazard, and therefore they actually mapped those kelp areas in the, the, digit- in the nautical charts. And we made all this digital and came up with a, a full distribution of kelp presence along the British Columbia coast. We also are, are presently using satellite data uh, from all the way from uh, 1980s to present, different types of satellite data with slightly not as good uh, what we call spatial resolution, which is the minimal area that it's seen on the ground by a satellite to very high spatial resolution, about 0.5 meters. 
And those are satellites that are flying about 600 to 700 kilometers above the Earth's surface, and we can still detect kelp. Uh, so we're looking at the presence of kelp along the entire BC coast at different times on this period in which satellite data exists. I guess I didn't realize that the reason that the original maps that you would have used um, were because kelps were navigate like they would have thought that that was a hazard uh, for navigating and for for larger ships so I guess I didn't even really think to ask why would they be mapping um, the areas of kelp as well so I wonder then um, were you using are you mapping an area like a sample area to kind of see how detailed you are or are you doing the entire coast we're looking at the entire coast of Colombia but we're start in parts so one of our focal areas right now is the Salish Sea and Haida Gwaii. And after those two main areas, we're going to start to uh, look in the maps, like deriving maps from the satellite image uh, to the north of British Columbia. The, the data from the 1800s, from the British Nautical Charts, are for the entire coast of British Columbia. So we compiled together with the Canadian Hydrographic Service and, uh, and DFO, we compile all this data set and we digitize and we did interpretation of this data and made a spatial, a spatial map for the entire coast of British Columbia. And now we're trying to come up with the present maps and which are all derived from satellite image. What, you, what was the process of creating the original chart, the charts from the 19th um, and, and 20th century that you are using um, what was the process that they used in order to create those maps? Well, those are nautical charts that were uh, uh, created by the, the, the British Navy uh, when they were in the west coast of Canada. And uh, they, those are similar as the nautical charts that we have right now that the Canadian Hydrographic Service creates. So these were creating at that time, uh, and they have... Uh, you know, they have the depth of the different areas. They have uh, areas where you have uh, rocks, which could be a problem for navigation. And the other component that it's a problem, it was a problem for navigation at that time, was presence of kelp. So they also map those areas in which kelp was present. Right. So they, it's quite beautiful, actually. It's all hand drawn. So it's quite an amazing piece of art. The nautical charge at that time. Yeah, it sounds like uh, it sounds like it is. And I saw in the um, in in the paper that you shared with me, um, some of the original drawings as well and some of the figures. And yes, they are. They're beautiful. They look like they should be in someone's dining room, well framed. <laughs> um, so they were employing, uh, you know, a very artful, uh, a very sort of artful approach to science. Um, how accurate were they? Well, so uh, that's the big question, right? So that was more than 100 years ago. There's not really how to prove the accuracy uh, of uh, those maps. However, what we did as part of our research to add accuracy to, to the product that we're generating from the nautical charts, we examine uh, the depth in which those kelp occur. Uh, when they map that. And it's definitely within the area that kelp can occur in British Columbia, right? So that was a way of proving that, yes, it's possible that kelp occur in that specific area. And now when we look at the satellite map that we're producing, the kelp map produced from the satellite image, we see kelp in a lot of the areas that uh, was present in the 1800s. So 
uh, I think uh, they were quite accurate, actually. But we also see some see some areas in which, uh, more recently, uh, we do not see as much kelp as there was on the British charts. So that could be areas that have lost kelp uh, permanently, or maybe those are areas that are going through some kind of cycle in which right now they don't have kelp, but maybe... Uh, you know, 50 years ago or 100 years ago, they had kelp, right? So they, there's some psych or some uh, physical driver that it's changing the, the condition and then kelp doesn't exist in that area any longer. That's right, because I know too that um, kelp likes intertidal areas. And so, but, and, and so, and also too, I guess what you're saying is it's not necessarily evidence that it's, it was over harvested, that it could just be, as you mentioned, a natural cycle and the kelp could return there. But um, but that kelp being a living thing, it, does it migrate? Uh, no, it it doesn't migrate per se, right? So it's it's kind of uh, it's attached, right? But it has a cycle in which, for example, bulk kelp it has an annual cycle, right? So every year it comes and there's the seedlings and so on. And bulk kelp has a cycle as well, but some areas you can see in BC it all year round. So you can have areas in which you have less kelp one year and other areas will have more kelp uh, the next year and so on. It does require some kind of a rock substrate, right, where the they cling to that uh, rock and so on. So it doesn't really help happen in, in sand substrate. So it needs some kind of rock substrate to 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 grow and so on. So it does need that specific environment. Um, uh, and one thing that you mentioned uh, about uh, over-harvesting, uh, not necessarily uh, this is, uh, you know, it's happening along the BC coast. There are other physical drivers which may be uh, playing uh, uh, a role in changes in kelp distribution in the BC coast, right? And, uh, for example, changes in uh, ocean temperature likely is one of the main drivers. So those are some of the things that we are actually evaluating right now. What are the drivers of change areas that kelp has been mostly present? Uh, so why did this happen? Or areas that have lost kelp and for how long they have lost kelp. So the satellite data that we are analyzing right now is allowing us to ask those questions because we have more data temporally speaking, right? So we're trying to understand what are the drivers of those changes in areas that have changed in regard to kelp. And, and that was um, my next question, actually. Um, and, and I just wonder, I kind of want to focus a little, uh, I'd love to focus now a little bit more on you. So um, using these old maps, um, I mean, is this common practice or was this something that was um, an inspired uh, thought by yourself and your colleagues? How, how did this actually come to be where you thought to use these these old maps? Um, it's not commonly used. So what happened was, uh, you know, a few years or a couple of years ago, I was uh, in a colleague's office and in at UVic, and I saw this beautiful nautical charge on his table. And, uh, and I start to see this wiggly lines along the coast and I was talking with him about it and he, I asked, do you know what these are? And he said, no, I don't, but those are beautiful maps. And uh, he found in some friend's basement or something along this line. And then he found them beautiful and brought to his, to his office. 
And I was like, wow, can I borrow it and bring to the lab downstairs? Because at that time, we're just starting to use satellite image to map kelp along uh, close to Cowichan area. And, uh, and then I brought the maps downstairs, the Nautico charge downstairs. Those are old. Uh, and uh, we start to look at the satellite image. And it was the same area that we're seeing kelp on the satellite image and the Nautico charge. So we look at all the different areas and we're like, oh, these are all kelp. And then I start to read so I dig into some information, uh, like historical uh, reports and things like that, and, and found information that the British used to map kelp because they were a navigation hazard. And then from that, I had meetings with the Canadian Hydrographic Service and DFO, and then we came up with the idea of putting the project together to use this historical, very rich historical data to, to have a spatial map of kelp along the coast, which we can use to a certain extent as a baseline because we don't have data older than, than what the Nautico charts are telling us. So this is the oldest data that we have access to right now, so of presence of kelp. Yeah, um, I, I love that. I love that, that it's just, you know, these un unaccounted for pretty squiggly lines on an old map that just looks cool that actually was the inspiration for you to go wait a minute these are why reinvent the wheel this has been navigated already exactly yeah yeah so i didn't do it they did it 100 years ago i just made it digital let's put it Uh, i mean come on credit where credit's due you saw it and no one else did (laughs) um so we we talked briefly about um you know, what, uh, you know, the, the changing waters uh, or the changing water temperature as being a potential um, reason for seeing change in kelp forest. But I wonder what else do you account to be some of the more significant uh, reasons for changes in the kelp forest that you've witnessed? Yeah, so there are uh, other, um, like, uh, what we call variables, right, which, uh, to a certain extent, they are almost related to each other. Uh, For example, when you look at what's called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which is kind of uh, an event that happens on a decadal base uh, along the BC coast. So this changes the the conditions of the oceans in which will change the temperature of the ocean, and this may have implications for kelp. So these are called the physical drivers. Salinity of the water may have implications as well. Wave action may have implications as well, and so on. But there's also what we call the biotic drivers. For example, uh, presence of sea urchins. Uh, they, the, you know, if you have a bloom of sea urchins in an area, you will have a decrease of kelp beds. Right. So there's what you call the physical drivers and also the the biological drivers of change of kelp, uh, like the, the, you know, when the, the sea otters were removed from the coast, uh, you know, more than a, about 100 years ago, actually, or a little bit more than that, um, because they were hunted and so on. So this was, uh, this had large implications for kelp because the sea otters, they eat the sea urchins. Uh, and uh, so there was a health kelp habitat, a health, co- uh, health kelp forest along the BC and Alaska coast with the, the decrease in sea otters, the kelp forest decrease, and the introduction of sea otters, uh, 
um, allow uh, several areas to um, to uh, recover their kelp forests, but not for the entire region along the BC and Alaska coast, but some of the areas in which sea otters was introduced. So there are the biological drivers and the physical drivers that may play a role on kelp uh, resilience. Okay, yeah. And I did actually, I read an article um, that up near Haida Gwaii that there's been more accounts of sea otters um, returning uh, returning to near Haida Gwaii there. And so I wonder if that means that there, that there's going to be um, a more lush kelp forest because of that too. And it's just, it's so interesting to see how, um, you know, everything's connected and sort of rely on each other as well. Um, it's It's just very cool. Yeah, yeah, and the and the, and the Parks Canada in Hyderabad, they are looking into. They do have a project right now, actually looking exactly into that, into the uh, sea otters' presence and how this is changing, the the not just kelp but the coast, uh, the areas along the coast of Hyderabad uh, because of sea otters returning to the to the waters there, right? Yeah, and that's good news. And I think is that how you and Daphne. That's Daphne Romero Salazar from episode two of Sea Change, the harvester, food scientist, and filmmaker from Haida Gwaii. Daphne is how I learned about Dr. Mycera Costa. Are sort are, are sort of working together? She said that I think she said that you lent her something called a CTD. Uh, was <laughs> yeah. That... So Daphne and I were uh, hoping to have a, a successful application. So she has recently applied for a government grant. Uh, to look into kelp, uh, different uh, evaluate different ways of harvesting kelp and monitor kelp in forest to build resilience and still have the the coastal communities using this this natural resource, right? As 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 economic benefit. This is actually very in tune to the federal initiative in related to blue economy, right? So both the provincial and the federal government. Uh, especially the federal government, are part of this international coalition of countries uh, which are together defined uh, how to have a better blue economy. And Canada, as we know, right, is a largely made of ocean. So, uh, and we we uh, use very little uh, the ocean as resources. And uh, the federal government initiative uh, within the blue economy uh, is actually going to be uh, trying to help to bring this in a sustainable way, right? To make better use of the ocean to provide resources, but doing it in a sustainable way, right? Preserving the environment as well. And the, some of the ideas of uh, Daphne project is very much linked to that. So we're going to be doing uh, monitoring of uh, some of the kelp forests uh, where Daphne works looking at uh, uh, what it's called, bringing this instrument called the CTD, basically there's a temperature and salinity profiler system, which also measures light in the water to understand, uh, you know, light availability for kelp, understand the temperature gradients in which kelp exist, and look at areas in which kelp are very healthy, areas in which kelp are not that healthy, and uh, areas in which restoration will start for kelp areas, right? Used to exist, and it doesn't exist anymore, and we'll try to apply some methods to restore kelp to those areas, to reintroduce kelp to those areas. So I'm quite excited about it. 
so so have I. I mean, just just hearing about it, and I uh, I'm sure I'll be in touch with um with the both of you if that does go through, because I'd love to talk about that if you successfully get the grant for that. So fingers crossed. Awesome. I'm, I'm I'm hoping for you. Okay. Um, what other sources are you using to map the kelp forest of coastal BC? So are you using your aerial photos and your and your maps for your spatial research? Um, I did read about um citizens helping sort of doing some of this surveying is that something that you're actually using is that data that's um that's useful and and, and plentiful in the studying that you're doing uh, uh definitely and one of the things that we're trying to do we're not building a citizen kelp uh network uh per se but we're trying to uh connect with as many as possible coastal communities along the bc one, because several of them have a lot of uh, knowledge about, uh, you know, uh, distribution of kelp because they're connected to that environment. And others are actually doing surveys. Every year they organize themselves and they do kayak surveys. Some are doing drone surveys using drones. And there's so much data uh, that uh, these communities are putting together and uh, uh, our intention is uh, finding if they are interested in contributing to this kind of large-scale project, right? Also, um, the the group that has the provincial government under the MAP initiative, uh, coordinated per, by Dr. Rebecca Martoni, uh, they have an actually um, uh, First Nations science citizen science network mapping kelp in the northern British Columbia area. So they have, I think, about 12 or 14 groups that are connected as part of their network. And together, every year, they apply similar methods and uh, um, to derive information about kelp distribution and kelp health status. And we are connected to her network, but we're not really using the data that she is uh, connect, collecting with the, the community that she is working with. Because there is different, uh, you know, it's not necessarily, data is not available for uh, everybody to use, right? Because she, they have different agreements for different First Nations communities. Yeah. So other other type of data that we we start to use more, uh, and this is more for local work in kelp to develop methods, is in partnership with the Hakai Institute, and we're uh, using drone data uh, to understand better uh, how to define methods to map kelp using aerial survey. Right, and so the drone data can be used to simulate what the satellite will be collecting, and then we can improve the methods that we will apply later on to the satellite images. And the other thing that I want to make sure it's, uh, it's said here, Pamela, is uh, this large-scale study that we're doing for kelp resilience is uh, with funds from the Pacific Salmon Foundation. Tell me, Dr. Costa, what to you is the importance of kelp forests to the coast of BC? Um, so they they provide this very rich habitat that it can be used as a shelter. It's a food for many ecological and economic important marine species. So just to name a few, so it's used by halibut, juvenile salmon, uh, cod, herring, crabs, abalone, just name it, right? So it's one of the richest habitats that we have in the BC coast. It's like the 
the tropical rainforest of the BC coast, right? So you think about the Amazon, we have the kelp forest here. And uh, yeah, so it just hosts uh, this all, this very large diverse of species in it. And at the same time, it's, uh, it's very important. It can be a very important component of the blue economy, not because a health habitat will host health fish, so it's important for fisheries, but it also can be an important component of the blue economy if it harvests properly, right? So like, for example, that in this project is trying to do. Yeah. Um, and uh, my, my last question is, um, what is your favorite way to eat seaweed? <laughs> Sushi. <laughs> Sushi, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but you know what? But, uh, uh, with Daphne, uh, as part of her project, one of her goals is to develop a lasagna yeah. based on kelp. So I'm quite excited to be the guinea pig for her kelp-based lasagna. <laughs> you know, I tried uh, last year in the beginning of the COVID or mid in the springtime or so when we start to see bulk kelp around uh, where I live in Cowichan or in, in Cadbury Bay in Victoria. Uh, mm-hmm. I got some kelp and I put it in the oven. I try to dry in different ways. I don't think I can do what Daphne does. <laughs> There's some <laughs> I could not replicate. So it didn't taste very good. Everybody at home was like, that's too salty. I said, oh, I guess I have to remove the salt before. Anyway, so I did some trials. didn't work. So I'm looking forward to actually buy the product that she makes. Yeah. Because I think those yeah, things I'm gonna leave it delicious. Exactly. I'm going to leave it to the professionals. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't, uh, it didn't work for me at all. <laughs> Dr. Costa wanted me to share two pieces of information with you before we go. One that her research could not have happened without funding from the Pacific Salmon Foundation and information and education provided by the First Nations peoples of coastal British Columbia. Secondly, if you're a citizen who's just a total nerd about seaweed and kelp, or maps, or spatial data, or an avid paddleboarder who spends a lot of time on the water, you can actually help Dr. Costa with her research. You can contribute knowledge or data so the team can compile an even larger database about the coast of British Columbia. Dr. Costa would be happy to hear from you, and you can email her at mycera at uvic.ca. Her name is spelled M-A-Y-C-I-R-A at uvic.ca. Sea Change is a production of CSEK News for Smithers Community Radio in Smithers, British Columbia. We proudly broadcast this show from the unceded Gittendem Territory, home of the Wet'suwet'en Nation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>